Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hey, what's up, everyone? Thank you for tuning into the Limitless Grid Podcast. In today's episode, I have the amazing Samira Sohel, who is the founder and the host of the Samira Stocks Show. Samira had a really interesting life from studying math at University of Cambridge to working as investment banking for two years to eventually working at BBC, then quitting her job living in Bali for a year, then eventually starting her podcast, Samira Stock. I've had some amazing conversations with her and she truly believes that life is not about the destination but the journey and she makes sure that she's being true and authentic to herself every single day. Guys, I've learned so much from her and I truly hope you get out of this conversation as much as I have gotten out of it. So without further ado, Samira Sohail, everyone. Samira, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. Um, for people who are not familiar with your work or your journey, if you want to give us a little background. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> a, a, a quick summary. Um, I was born in the UK. Uh, I'm British, uh, Pakistani and Indian. I'm a middle child. I probably goes on <laughs> to explain a lot of my later shenanigans. Um, I studied maths at university and uh, was always an avid sports player growing up as well. Um, I went on after university, I spent a year in Paris learning French and did investment banking for a while. I covered the tech, media and telecoms industry at a big American Investment Bank. I later then went to the BBC, which is um, the UK public broadcaster, Uh and I went and launched their digital services there. I was there for five years, had an amazing journey with them, and after that I decided to take a sabbatical, (laughs) as one does. I spent nearly a year living in Bali, uh, which is where Samira stalks. Uh, a podcast I created was born um, and that is something I'm doing still that was probably about a year and a half ago um, obviously returned from Bali um, to the London uh, I did a short stint as a venture capital investor there and yeah came out to New York uh, to work with one of the startups so wow. that's me today <laughs> such an interesting life um, but I want to start by, you know, your childhood, right? Being born to an Indian-Pakistani parents and, you know, most of my listeners are from the United States and London, so they might not be familiar with the whole history, but how was it being raised in a Indian-Pakistani household? Yeah, I think um, for those who aren't aware, uh, traditionally the has been tension between India and Pakistan after the partition and more pertinently my dad is Muslim and my mum is Hindi yeah. which is a rare combination it's I like unheard of yeah yeah um, I think as a kid growing up you actually don't realize that's the norm for you yeah so you don't see that as a big deal until people yeah. <laughs> kind of give you 
looks like that or ask you what's that like um you know in in the, all the positive things from that are we were brought up in two faiths so you know we i went to mosque i read the quran uh, equally we went to temple and you know we celebrate and practice a lot of hindu customs and traditions and i would say later on in life um particularly during my experience in bali i started i don't know if it's practicing or reading more about buddhism and more of the spiritually led religions or mm. you know uh practices and philosophies but yeah i think um what was great is that I was brought up in a household to be really respectful of all faiths and cultures and I think being born in London which is such a diverse place you know growing up I think as kids like you know Obama tweeted that photo of like mm-hmm. no kid is born racist and it's mm-hmm. really true like growing up my friends were from all ethnicities and it's not something if anything it was celebrated you know we had greek friends and there was like greek orthodox and then it was jewish friends and it was Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur mm-hmm. And it was all just like an eclectic boiling pot of uh, of different customs and different foods and different festivals. Yeah. And you loved math. Did you always love math? I think your major was math in Cambridge as well, right? Yeah. I, I mean, there's no there's no like long answer to that. I think as a kid, I always loved maths. I was really good at it, and so that probably just meant you know yeah. I think there's a strong correlation between what you're good at yeah. and what you end up liking because there's such a reward yeah. mechanism and I think I was quite in a way single single-minded that I always wanted to study that um, at university and I think that's one one of the differences between I would say the British and the American education system it's very common to do quite a pure degree so in, in one discipline uh, rather than necessarily a vocational subject. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, so kind of, you know, at school was part of, like, maths club and other, other things related to the topic. I remember even after uni, when I was working in investment banking, I would tutor on my weekends. Oh, yeah. I'd tutor kids' maths uh, as well. And I was working crazy hours at the time, but it was just something I enjoyed doing um, and yeah I think later on like I've moved I work in the in the finance I'd say media and tech intersection at the moment so I do miss doing something as, as kind of pure uh, as problem solving and math yeah. um, like as part of my vocation yeah and um, I read your articles in Medium, and if you guys have, I'll put a link to her uh, Medium profile, and her articles are amazing. But you mentioned that, you know, in like your high school, you were one of the smartest kid, but when you went to Cambridge, it was really hard for you to be the smartest kid. Like, how was it um, going into one of the best universities in the world, and like, did it affect with your self-esteem? Yeah, I think um, if, as a kid, your self-identity is around being bright or mm-hmm. being intelligent, uh, and that is reinforced by, you know, everyone you know, and then you start to self-identify with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was astonishing about going to Cambridge was, you know, and I wasn't just good at maths, I was 
like a very competitive tennis player. I was quite an outgoing, like socially aware, culturally aware person. So I considered myself quite balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, okay, you know, going to Cambridge, even if people were really good at, at one subject, I've got these other things like yeah. under my belt. But what you realise on day one is that most people there, or like nearly all people there, are exceptional and often in a variety of disciplines. And so what, you know, used to make you stand out as a child and as a young adult is no longer the case. Um, so that, yeah, like you said, I think, and, you know, I, I, that's one of the reasons I started to tutor as well later on is because... I used to say to parents, you know, I've been the brightest kid at school, so I know how frustrating it is for a bright kid not to feel pushed or challenged Mm -hmm. in class, and equally (laughs) have been the dumbest kid in the class who doesn't understand anything that's going on, and that definitely was a lot of my experience uh, at Cambridge at the beginning. How did you come about accepting yourself for who you are rather than your identity of being the smartest person? I think honestly, I think that question is a lifelong journey, um, and a lot of my time on my sabbatical was like exploring those types of things of like, who am I, like, what do I identify with, but then not being too attached to those things. Um, I think at university, you know, almost I didn't. It was almost like there was so much pressure. I didn't have like the I didn't have the luxury almost of of getting into that psyche it was like I needed to pass my exams I needed Mm -hmm. to understand this subject I needed to like integrate in make friends play tennis or whatever it was that I was kind of obsessed with doing Mm -hmm. and and yeah I think it probably did have uh, an impact on my confidence and also you know, maths isn't the type, you know, it's not like a lang- languages or history or English. It's not subjective. Mm-hmm. And also the type of people that do maths, you know, they're very introverted to some extent. And one of the reasons I loved the subject was because it's a language in and of its own right. Mm-hmm. It's intangible. It's very beautiful. Like you immerse yourself into this world that is untainted and untouched and you go into these like, I don't know, journeys or like, you know, these kind of adventures in maths land where you put topics and, and subjects together, even like subtopics within maths together that you thought could never be possible. Like, it's, I, I sound like a crazy person, but... No one has ever explained maths in that way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a great, great subject, but back to your question, I think, honestly, at that time, it was just about perseverance and... You know, I remember even at uni wanting to quit the subject, but I refused to, like, give up and switch to another subject because I was like, no. Are you happy that you didn't? I think so. Like, I, I studied maths at Trinity, which is where Newton went. So Ooh. that, um, you know, to date, that has, like, been a very valuable thing. Uh, you know, whenever I whenever I go for job interviews or speak to people, whatever it might be, Um so I'm really proud that I did that. So how was working as an investment banker after your uni? Yeah, I think um, at the time I applied for graduate jobs, 
investment banking was kind of the rock star role. I would say in today's day and age, you know, it would be maybe going into the tech world or a Facebook or Google or whatever field you're in. But at that time, it was seen from certain measures that it's very prestigious, you earn a lot of money, it's very, mostly it's very difficult to get into, just not necessarily because innately because of the job, but mm-hmm. just because the companies get can get best pick mm-hmm. of the talent. Um, and yeah, I was, I am from like an Asian background, I think, and there's a lot of correlation with, you know, professional services or being a doctor or a dentist. And you're kind of ingrained at a young age to like success is like potentially earning a lot of money. Um, and I was probably quite heavily influenced by that. And, you know, the, the people around me, I would say. And um, yeah, so I was also very, I think at that age, driven a lot by reputation and stamps on my CV and all of mm. those types of things. Um, yeah, so the experience itself was uh, like really hard work. <laughs> it was very long hours, um, a very kind of cutthroat culture. I was there in 2010 during the financial crash, so oh. there were rolling redundancies across my firm and team at the time I'd started. And that was our first graduate job, you know. So you walk walk into the working world and then, like, you know, 40-year-old men are, like, leaving the office crying because they're being made redundant or people are worried that they're going to get a call to say, hey, you're next. So you're treading on eggshells. At the same time, really high performance is expected of you. On the flip side of that, the good things are, like, you get a very good corporate skill set you get to work with the C-level suite of amazing companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my clients include like BT and Vodafone, um, the BBC, ITV, Sky. So really like exciting companies. Um, And yeah, those are skills that, you know, can, um, you can use going forward. And more than anything, I think that kind of boot camp gives you a very good work ethic and like persistence really how long did you work as an investment banker two years two solid years <laughs> but i swear it felt like five <laughs> wow. so what was that point when you're like you know what i'm done like i'm out yeah i think uh i specifically remember actually it was on election night and i think it was the time the coalition was formed the first one and I remember I was making some slides and I was about like, I think I was the only person in the office. Um, it was, you know, 11pm or midnight, just when the first kind of signs of what was going to happen mm-hmm. were coming out. And yeah, I just remember thinking, mm, you know, all of this stuff is happening outside these walls. I'm really isolated from society to some extent I'm it's not that I'm not politically aware but I just don't feel that me working on like massive transactions was my was the best way I could contribute Mm -hmm. to society um and like I didn't think it was like innately leveraging 
my skills or talent to date. And so I think that was the night I was, I just thought like, enough is enough. I, I, as well as that, I remember I was getting health problems from stress uh, and like lack of sleep and yeah, like high pressure and all of those things. Um, and it's one thing, you know, at university or late, like in other parts of life, you put pressure on yourself. Mm-hmm. So you can manage that pressure. It's another thing when that's an external force where you can't necessarily control that yeah. to some extent. Um, so, yeah, I think that was the day I decided that, um, yeah, I needed, a, I needed a transition plan. My first job out of college, like, I was like, yeah, I want to be in finance and I want to make money and live in Manhattan, and I got everything. But then once you start working at a place that you absolutely hate 50 to 60 hours a week, first few months is fine because you're making money but after a while it starts killing your soul like no matter how much you make or whatever you do it's not going to fulfill you because you're just you know that's just not right like you're just running in the wrong direction yeah I I remember it wasn't even a money thing like I didn't you know I had all this money and I was like I just want to play tennis or I want to be able to play netball or go to the cinema I was just you know I was thinking to myself, I'm earning all this money, but really, it's not really yeah. making me happy. You know? And we have this idea that there's like, we need big things to make us really, really happy. But at the end of the day, it's little things, you know, like for me traveling, like my first job provided me with traveling and traveling for 15 days was so much better than working there for a year, you know? Yeah. But how did you uh, end up at BBC? Um... I think after the experience, I decided two things, that I wanted to do something broader than just pure finance, so I wanted to learn some other skills. And I remember when I was working with those companies, I, I always liked to hear about you know, their marketing or their operations or their supply chains or just a more holistic view of their business. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go into a different functional role, so I went into strategy. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing was, I really wanted to work for a company where I believed in their mission and I was proud of their product and service. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I'd previously always, uh, I would say, flitted between the private sector and the public sector. So I remember one summer at Cambridge, I interned at Goldman's, another summer I interned at the Bank of England. And so, yeah, I just thought, I was probably and still am driven a lot by impact Mm. and the BBC you know it touches millions if not billions of people worldwide it you know 96 or 7 percent of the UK population interact with the BBC on a daily basis uh, across TV radio and online and just the plethora of content that it makes um, is just you know it's heartwarming from you know, Attenborough's Planet Earth and his later series to BBC comedy classics to, you know, the BBC News itself is still, I think, the most trusted source of of news uh, in the world. Um, Yeah. What did you learn most from working at BBC? I think um, out of the five years, a couple of things. The first is how beautiful and how amazing it was to learn in unstructured environments. Mm. 
So typically in, in banks or consultants or accountancy or quite structured uh, places, you know, you're, you're pretty much told what to do and you get promoted every year and there's like a, a track. It's kind of the Wild West at the BBC, you know. You make your own work, you pitch your own projects, you get stuff done by forming a coalition of like-minded people and, and you work with brilliant minds from eclectic skill sets. So, oh. like, I'd been in a bubble my whole life. I had been at private school, I'd been at Cambridge, and then I went into investment banking. They're all type A, high performer type people. At the BBC, I was working with journalists, with cameramen, with, like, uh, user experience designers, with technologists, with... Uh, editorial writers with you know just people from really different walks of life Mm -hmm. firstly like from a social background uh, but also just completely different skills you know I'd I was from a very analytical background Mm -hmm. and you know working with creatives and quite mad people most of the time but great like really uh, eclectic yeah so that was one thing and just learning in unstructured environments the second thing was just learning very early on that um, you need to chart your own path, mm-hmm. um, like your own career path and your own kind of life planning path, I would say. Uh, and yeah, in a good or a bad way, like uh, the BBC forced me to do that because, you know, there wasn't one person who was kind of looking out for me saying, okay, do that next. Like that's where your next promotion is going to come for. No, I have to go and like hunt it out, snivel it out, almost pitch myself roles every time. Like I wanted to progress. But one thing, the last thing I would say is, I was always um, really lucky to have really strong women um, above me that were, I guess, kind of mentors or people that I could look to for advice. Um, and one of the great things about my role at the BBC was that I got a lot of access to very senior people. Oh. And so that was, um, I think that was really, like, just a really good experience as a young person. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, like, BBC is in anywhere you go. So, you know, it's not just UK, it's, like, worldwide. And you started their digital... Yeah, so specifically what I did there was I used to launch and grow their digital services so things like bbc news online uh which is yeah used worldwide uh to bbc iplayer which is our video on demand service uh it's where people can watch bbc content online and then later on um in my later years there i started launching their new digital services so we launched i launched their first music service called bbc playlister an art service. Um, I moved BBC Three Online, which was a youth entertainment channel. Um, yeah, and just got. I worked on BBC Earth Online, so I, I just got to work on really cool. That's amazing. I think, exciting stuff. I you helped. probably felt like you were making impact every day. Yeah, definitely. Like there's definitely a strong sense of anyone who works there of like a public service uh, ethos and that. You know, even if it's been a crappy day, you're proud of the BBC and you're definitely proud to work there. Wow. Which is a really nice feeling. That's amazing. 
I read your articles, and in one of the articles you said, you know, when you were young, you were obsessed with success and achievement, and all your peers were on top 30 under 30. So what made you take sabbatical from BBC? Yeah, um, so I'm quite competitive, I would say. <laughs> I never get that feeling. I feel like I've known you for a couple of months, but... <laughs> Um, I guess good. I'm hiding it. <laughs> um, I think I played tennis my whole life, so <laughs> it kind of makes you it uh, makes you competitive. No, I think um, you know specifically to that point about why I took my sabbatical, and I wrote a piece about this. Is I had had. Uh, just a week of hell, I would say, mm. uh, that all, um, yeah, I'd had a week of hell where I think on the, on the Monday at the BBC, I'd been promised that, like, well, I'd not even been promised, I'd, like, created this scenario that I could move to New York, um, and I found out that that was no longer happening, and that's something I'd been, like, working on for six months, and... Um, and then I think on the Tuesday, oh, I think my flatmate had asked me to move out. Um, I think her sister was moving into her place and, you know, it just it wasn't good timing because the last thing anyone wants to do in their life is, like, house hunt. And London's like New York. It's just insanely expensive for what you get. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the Wednesday... My dad had had a bout of colon cancer uh, the Christmas before, which was cured. Like, he got through it, but I think they had thought he might have lung cancer. And, um, yeah, it turns out he didn't, but it was just, like, it just, you know, with cancer, it's just, (laughs) there's, you know, there's nothing to describe what, like, people go through when when that hits. Um, and then I think on, like, the Thursday or the Friday, I had tried to run the marathon a couple of years earlier and had a really bad hip injury. Uh, and that pain and that injury had almost just resurfaced to the point that by the end of the week, I was broken, you know? I just was so stressed about, like, I didn't, I just hated my job by that point I was like I don't want to be here anymore but then I didn't have any look I knew I needed to find a house I didn't know if my dad was okay and then on top of that I was in physical pain to the point like I couldn't walk and I was just really really stressed and I think you know sometimes like external circumstances I think just like give you the push that you that you need um and so I Re-evalu- I just started looking at things differently. You know, all the things that I was getting hit up about. I'm single, I haven't bought a house, and I don't like my job. That was the rhetoric in my head. Like, oh, like, this is crap. But then I was like, actually, I'm single, I'm unattached, I haven't bought a house, I don't have an effing mortgage, so, like, I don't need to take some stupid high-paying job, like, if I cut my costs. And what was my last one? that I don't like my job. Oh yeah, so I don't like my job, so what the hell am I staying for anyway? So, like, I honestly like reframed this whole thing to be like, F it, I'm just gonna go. Like, there's, there's nothing to kind of stay for right now. 
And I knew that I was really uncomfortable with ambiguity and I'd long harbored ambitions to like do my own startup or start my own thing. And so I thought, what's the most, what's the best, what's the most challenging thing I could do for myself? And as someone who was a planner, who was analytical, who like, you know, was very structured, mm-hmm. I actively wanted to put myself in a very unstructured experience. And so in my head, I thought the best way I can do that is book a one-way ticket somewhere. That's amazing. And so I picked Bali because genuinely I wanted to go to the closest place that looked like Avatar. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I just want to go and be in nature and like swim in waterfalls and hike and just lots of wholesome, pure reconnecting. I was, I had also practiced yoga on and off probably for 10 years prior to that. Um, and I just wanted to explore that, that kind of side of myself and, and being Mm -hmm. as well. And, and yeah, I, uh, there was, someone had told me about this thing called Vipassana, Mm -hmm. which is a 10 day silent meditation retreat, which is based on Buddhist principles. And once I decide I like want to do something like that, then it's like, yeah it's done you know like in (laughs) my head yeah in my head it was like "Mm, this seems like a good idea let me just go to Bali and I don't know why even as a kid you know you people have images in their head I used to it's really random I think it's still on my fridge at home when I tried to explain to my parents what I was doing but you know that there's a girl with like a stick and like a red polka dot scarf where she like packs up her things (laughs) and like walks out the door with her stick for whatever reason I had this image in my head and I was like yes I want to be her I'm just gonna (laughs) leave so yeah that's uh what led me to take my sabbatical wow how long were you in Bali for so I was there for probably about nine months but I came back to London for a bit I think for Christmas um and decided to go back out again and yeah, I think, you know, people ask me what I did there, and I really can't recount, you know, I would, uh, the structured things I did were I did this 10-day silent meditation retreat, which was just an amazing... I'm sure it was really hard, right? ...life experience. Yeah, I, I, um, when people are like, what was it like? I say, you go through all the emotions of the seven dwarfs, so it... Um, the first three days, I'd say, are mentally exhausting because you haven't really learnt to turn off the thoughts in your mind. Mm-hmm. And also, you're just in so much physical pain because, you know, we've been wired to sit at computers. I've done cardio my whole life. Like, if anyone had even asked me to sit cross-legged before going, my knees would be up to my face. And... <laughs> You know, I couldn't sit cross-legged before going, and then you had to sit in 10 days for, like, 12 hours a day, completely still. 12 hours a day? Yeah, I don't know how how many hours it was. It wasn't all in one sit, but pretty much, I think, 10 to 12 hours of meditation. No, it's noble silence as well. So you don't speak to anyone for the whole period, and you don't make eye contact, or you don't do exercise, you don't dance, you don't write, no... Because I'm going to do it, so I'm scared. <laughs> no, don't be scared. Like, I think, um, be apprehensive and start to cultivate a strong mind to get through it. Uh, 
But it's, uh, yeah, like I said, the first three days, physical pain, and emotionally, you're just exhausting yourself. And then you realise, like, by day three, I think, that, okay, you you will actually go mad. Like, you <laughs> genuinely will go mad if you don't start to, you know, turn off these thoughts and these emotions. Um, and you also learn to kind of master physical pain. So that's really cool in the sense that you can feel something paining. Like, when something pains, you could maybe feel blood rushing there or whatever it is. And, yeah, you get to a point where you can observe that. So it's not that it's physically stopped doing that, but it doesn't affect you. You're not bothered by it. So that's quite cool. And the last three days is when you have, like, quite just, I'd say, deeper experiences of... And I don't want to talk about it too much because everyone has their own and they Mm. will describe them in their own way. Um, But, yeah, where you, you know, feel instances of, amazing gratitude for just being alive or compassion or kind of at one with like the earth people and everything that we experience so yeah I really um yeah not I would enjoy is the weird a weird word to say but uh just understood about yourself yeah understood about myself and um just really like you you experience every emotion if that makes sense you go through anger sadness happiness like giggly like everything and anything like you feel like you've almost lived like a thousand lives in these 10 days because when in your life have you spent Mm -hmm. 10 days just completely focused with your own mind yeah maybe as a baby where you couldn't like communicate with anyone else but yeah, um, that was, sorry, back to your original question, which was, what did you do probably in Bali? Um, that was uh, one of the most structured things I did. And then otherwise, you know, just kind of got on with it. So I learned to ride a motorbike and dotted myself around different places that I wanted to see. Um, tried to keep my meditation and yoga practice. Just explored a lot of the things that I hadn't really explored about myself from like arts uh, did a lot of painting dance a lot of reading and found like loads of sports things to get involved in yeah, uh, yeah it was just very it was just you're just present and yeah you're living exactly what uh, was like two or three lessons that you've learned from living an unstructured life um Probably that, like, everything will work itself out. And I think it teaches you when to put more control in, when to step back a bit. So the reason I did this is because I was, I thought I was too controlling of everything. And then, you know, they say that the biggest um, cause of unhappiness is the big, when there's the biggest difference between expectation and reality. And so if you're an over-planner and over-thinker, your expectation is always so meticulously planned out. Mm-hmm. And so often, more often than not, the reality doesn't match that exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, that was um, 
one of the main things that um, you learn when to let go of things and when to be a bit more, I don't know, apparent with things. And then, yeah, I just, I think I definitely believe in the idea of energy. So I did a lot of work around manifestation and those types of things. And I really did, like, I feel like being in a state of being and, and flow where, you know, I was just way more in tune with that stuff. I would say it's very hard to like give practical examples of that yeah. but um yeah definitely yeah felt that like yeah oh, that's amazing what is Samira Stocks and oh. how did you come about starting it so Samira Stocks was born in Bali in my rice field uh in my bedroom <laughs> and did you have any idea about it, or you just created that in Bali? Um, no, I think, like, with most things, they start as, like, a series of little things or ideas. So I always felt at the BBC I couldn't be as expressive necessarily as I wanted to, and in a public arena, because I worked for the BBC. So even things like, I remember once I was like, want to start a twitter feed and like tweet about tech news and everyone was like no you can't do that it's like okay fine whatever <laughs> but um i used to joke with my friends that i'm going to start a blog and you know some of it would be like tech news some of it would be like books i like and then there would be a funny little button that said like samira like samira stalks or who i'm stalking Something like that. Because as a kid, I loved Desert Island Discs, which is a radio show where um, they invite prominent figures uh, from all different walks of life to talk through their life with seven of their favourite music tracks. Mm -hmm. So I was an ardent listener of that. I would always read biographies of people I admired. And yes, I was always like reading stories of people doing cool stuff, I Mm -hmm. think. So had joked that I'd start this blog and one of the tabs would be Samira Storks, just as a kind of joke. Uh, but that would always provoke a reaction. So people would like, oh yeah, I'd read it, but I would totally only read it because of that. Yeah. To see what you're up to and like what 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 crazy ideas or, you know, things that you're looking at. Um, so that was one thing. Desert Island Discs was another thing, I think. The third thing was I was obsessed with TED Talks. So I love oh, TED Talks. Um, and, yeah, I just felt that, as amazing as the guests are on there, I felt that they often had been working in their fields for, like, tw- 10 or 20 years, 30-plus, even more. And they were very established in a very specific field. And then I was like, well, I'm never going to get on TED because I've jumped around so much. I've done, like, <laughs> loads of weird stuff. And... And I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to start a storytelling platform where I share stories that I think are from a more eclectic mix of people, a younger demographic who I believe are creating a positive social impact. And also, yeah, just from different walks of life. So whether that impact is like startup and tech or whether it's activism, innovation, mm-hmm. an artist. Uh, yeah, and I really felt there was a need for a different voice uh, on that, um, and particularly around tech uh, and science as well. Like I 
had always been a minority as a girl and then as an Asian girl mm. in those fields. And I just thought I could bring like a fresh and a lighter tone to it and make that world more accessible to people. Wow, it's a really awesome concept. What has been like the hardest thing about a podcast? I mean, for me personally, it's like, I think we talk about this a lot. It's, you have great content. I've listened to your content and you know, like I want, I'm gonna put like a link about your podcast in my show notes as well. But for me personally, it's like, sometimes it's like having a great content, not necessarily means, you know, like... Yeah, success. Success. Yeah. But at the same time, like, like we talked about, it's all about being persistent. How do you, like, what keeps you... Doing it. Yeah. I think, you know, what's really important about something, anything you start, and people have different schools of thought, when it comes to entrepreneurship. Some people say, find a gap in the market and, you know, create a product that audience, like that people, not even audiences, that customers like, mm-hmm. and you'll be fine. But I, there's this Japanese philosophy, I can't remember, it begins with an I, Igami or something like that. But mm-hmm. I always think of the third concentric circle, which is what you're passionate about. And for me, it's, uh, when I, whenever I want to quit Samira Storks, it's like, well, why would I do that? I get to interview really awesome and meet amazing people. Like I interviewed Pixar's first female employee who's worked on 12 films there from Toy Story all the way wow. up to like what Coco that's just come out. And she was also a comp ski from Harvard. Again, had similar like experiences of just being the only girl doing this subject and you know, dealing with that uh, throughout her working and education. Um, And, yeah, for me, doing something that, like, doesn't feel like work is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, the way I see it is I get to interview and meet really inspiring and awesome people. I get to talk to them and Mm -hmm. share their story. And so it's very easy to keep going. So that, that helps with the persistence part the consistency (laughs) yeah I don't have the best marks on that no I mean you have like 25 episodes yeah so I definitely know that you know publishing regularly is really key and I have been better at that definitely in season two like I've been publishing weekly um so that's been good um the third thing I would say just positivity so you said it earlier, like, and it's a very like Buddhist mentality of like, don't be attached to the outcome mm-hmm. and enjoy the journey. Really cringe, but on my personal statement, I think I wrote this about maths. I wrote, to every journey there must be an end, but it's the journey that counts in the end. And you know, you sh- like I try and apply that to most mm-hmm. things I do. That even if I'm trying to get there, you know. I- I enjoy the process, I enjoy the graft, like I enjoy the stalking and the hustling <laughs> to get that person to be on it or yeah. finding a way into that person yeah. or my equipment falling over just before like I'm about <laughs> to start the show or whatever it might be, yeah. I will fumble my way through. Um, yeah, so I would say persistence, positivity and consistency are key yeah. um, to that. Yeah, and for me, I think, like, 
I've like questioned myself a lot. Sometimes I like pull my hair. I'm like, why am I doing this? But yeah, then... no one cares. No <laughs> one's listening to your stories. What business do you have telling stories? All the yeah, like, like all the rejections. Yeah, and... no, like literally, even if you make good content, then how are you going to distribute it? Yeah. You know, you don't have millions to pay on paid marketing. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think those are all like valid concerns. I would say try and find communities and pockets of people. Be very clear on who you want your target audience to be. Mm-hmm. You know, have personas of them. Yeah. I remember on my initial documents, I wrote user stories, which is like, hi, this is Mark. Mark is 22 and lives in a metropolitan city or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. He listens to podcasts on his commute. He wants to be surprised and delighted with new ideas around technology or whatever it like is and um, being very clear yeah about who you're who you're trying to target and also what what you want to what you want to be evoked so mm-hmm. do you want them to be educated entertained how do you want them to feel at the end of it in awe angry shocked um surprised do you want to get their backs up, you know? Do you want to help soothe? Whatever it is, yeah. like, having that clear... Um, intention. Intention, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, but at the end of the day, like, one person will text you or message you and be like, wow, that really changed my perspective. And that kind of makes it worth the whole struggle. Like, even... And I think, like, understanding value of a person instead of thousand people, yeah. right? I think that's very true. Like, it's very easy to, in anything, to, like, refresh stats. And even when it comes to social media, you know, this like or that like. Yeah. Or how many, how many audiences and that, you know, it's such a shame social currency has such a high social status now, oh, in yeah. a way. But um, you're right. Like, even... And what's difficult about podcasting is that the nature of the medium means that it's not particularly a responsive or engaging platform. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? So, you know, if you post an article on Facebook or if you um, put out a tweet or an Instagram photo or whatever it might be, people are very used to commenting below mm-hmm. or retweeting or liking or doing something like that in a click of a button. But when people are listening to podcasts, they might be listening on their commute uh, or at home while cooking dinner, whatever it might be. And so it's a very unnatural behaviour mm-hmm. then to go find your Twitter address and tweet you or message you to say, hey, I really like this one. And so sometimes it can feel like you're just throwing things into the ether. Yeah, and it's word of mouth, I think, mostly. Yeah. Well, I'm um, going to ask you some rapid-fire questions. Yeah. What are two or three books you would recommend to our listeners? Um, so one of my favourite books is The Reluctant Fundamentalist. Um, it's a very short book. It's basically about a... I think, he, yeah, he's born in Pakistan, but he grows up in America, and he deals with what a lot of British or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Asians in Western places mm-hmm. deal with is that like sense of identity between the two cultures and uh yeah he works through that works through he actually ends up dating a girl not from the same background and also is uh you know 
does all the things he was supposed to do, like going to a good school, getting a good job, and kind of realises it doesn't make him happy. Um, it's a very short book, and yeah, I just love it, because I think it's really well written, and it, he really, he gave a voice mm-hmm. to, uh, I think, how a lot of people feel uh, from that type of background. So that's one. The second is, I would say, Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) No, this is a serious thing because whenever I'm super stressed or up in my own head, it's actually very good to read because he looks at life really simply. And almost like writing a gratitude diary, it's like, hey, I hung out with Piglet today (laughs) or whatever it might be. And it just makes you remember, like, the small things um, that do make you happy and all of that, I think. Uh, yeah, very similar to a gratitude diary. And also, yeah, just to see things a bit more black and white. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I just think he is a hero. <laughs> and if we all lived a bit more like Winnie the Pooh, stuff would be great. <laughs> Any uh, documentaries or movie you would recommend? I love documentaries. I'm just trying to think. I mean, it's a weird one to say on here, but it's the only one for whatever reason that's coming to my head right now, which is the Lance Armstrong one um, that looked at his doping and his cheating. Uh, And the reason I found it so impactful was because he, like, on one, on one, in one light, he was, like, put on this pedal stool uh, for so long. And then in another light, even after, like, all these allegations came out, he just was so relentless about being humble about it, like, apologising. And you just saw he was so single-mindedly driven to do... What, to achieve what he wanted to at, at any given cost and almost to the point of a sociopath and I just found it fascinating like more from a like I cannot believe this mm. person um, but yeah I just I remember watching that and thinking okay so this is the danger of being very goal orientated or single minded on certain things and being too attached Mm -hmm. to outcomes of where you're trying to get to because you can lose your way very easily and he's missing his journey too yeah it's all about winning so yeah any quote or a mantra you live by be the hero of your own adventure and that is something I learned from a storyteller who came in who worked at Pixar or works at Pixar he came into the BBC and he did a a kind of session to staff about how they think about stories and storytelling and yeah he said that was kind of the underlying principle for all of the main characters and I think it's a great there's a philosopher called Joseph Campbell as well I love him yeah power of myth exactly just finished reading actually there we go and actually that that I should talk about those documentaries because that is a very good set of documentaries he's behind star wars mythology exactly and a lot of you know he he'll discuss like a narrative arc and you know your formula almost Mm -hmm. for what all good stories go through um but yeah back to the 
be the hero of your own adventure. I always just think if you kind of just abstract yourself from like your day to day and like, oh, this is me just going to school or going to work and it's raining today, kind of whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like fumbling along or this thing went wrong, oh, doesn't really matter, like mm-hmm. pick yourself back up and you, you just keep that light, lightness and playfulness around what you're doing. I think that's what that mantra reminds me to do, that just shake it off a bit, you know, it's not all so serious um, and you'll get to where you need to be. Absolutely. Where can people find you in social media? At Samira Storks, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, I've got a Twitter, an Instagram feed, a Facebook page, and also over email. So at a time I was writing weekly, kind of a weekly blog uh, on the kind of mishaps and mayhem going on in the tech and startup and business world, which I do want to uh, reignite. Um, So sign up to my mailing list as well on my website. Awesome. I always ask this last question, what is your definition of courage? I would say it's comprised of two things. The first is uh, like knowing your intuition and the second is acting on that. You know, most people need, like I would say, it takes work to understand your own intuition and to know what the signals are for that. And then it takes like a whole other step to actually act on it, whether that's internal fear barriers or external society or peers or family. Um, but that's what I would say courage is. Mm. Because it's, it's, it's very personal to each individual. You know, when I always think when you like walk down Oxford Street or New York, you know, everyone's got a story. You've got no idea what's just happened at home in the morning or what people have been through in their lives to be walking there now. Mm -hmm. You've got to give everyone a bit of slack because everyone's fighting their own battles. And, yeah. Samira, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Hey, you guys, thank you so, so much for listening to this podcast. I really, really appreciate your time. And if you enjoyed this episode, then make sure to subscribe because every single week I will come up with awesome and epic interviews like this one. And do not forget to check out my website, limitlessgrid.com for show notes.